Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, Matt is a good friend and a partner. He's here because he's attending the Advanced Conference. Um, but even if there wasn't a conference, Matt and I, over the last number of years, um, have really connected not only through uh, friendship, but through partnership. Um, and it's a privilege to have him and Shan with us. They are a gift to Mercy Commons and a gift to Karen and I personally. So I'm going to pray and let you loose. Father, thank you for this man. Thank you for his love for your word, but his also deep love for you and for your people. Thank you for the reality that I've seen him be shaped by your word and gifted in order to be able to preach your word. And Father, we don't rely on his gifting or his talent or his ability to express what you've placed inside him. We rely on your Holy Spirit to anoint him with power and authority. And we also trust that your Holy Spirit would work in our minds and hearts uh, to bring realignment and repentance when necessary. Yeah. Uh, Spirit of God, speak to us. Our ears are open. Mm. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. morning. We're thankful that we don't rely on my eloquence and my wisdom, but on the Holy Spirit. Uh, As he said, I am Matt Martinez. I was thinking of that song. Matt Martinez, husband of Shannon, father of five, this is who I am. This is who I am. <laughs> Did you guys get it? Yeah. All right, all right, all right. Hey, guys, it's, it's great. Yeah, I know. We got it. Move on. Hey, great to be with you guys. Uh, it is, I, I was talking to John Mark and, and Jimmy, actually, too, and I was just saying, it really is a privilege to be here. I don't say that to patronize you guys. Um, it's a privilege to teach the Word of God. And it's a privilege to be invited into someone else's church to teach the Word of God. So really I'm thankful and um, just filled with a lot of faith for this morning. I come from Sacramento, up from the north. Oh, yes. Go Kings. And um, yeah, lead, lead a church called Capital City Church that I have had the pleasure of being handed from my father who planted the church some 35 plus years ago and uh, have been leading it for the last five years and just feel privileged every day to be called uh, as an under-shepherd of God's church. So I come to you guys this morning with humility, but also with a tremendous amount of faith that God will speak to us as his people and as his body. And so I'm gonna speak this morning out of Ephesians chapter four, and, and one of the things that I always enjoy is coming down here is looking forward to the graphics that Grace has put together. So I'm going to just take this in for a moment, and the text is right there, Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, and I'm going to read it in a moment, um, but before I do that, I want to just kind of give you a, a bit of an overview as to what my aim is for this morning. I'm really, I'm hoping to do two things. I want to elevate in our hearts and our minds the value of the gathered people of God. Now, that might sound very simple, But in reality, it is a very significant and a profound thing in God's design. So I want to elevate the value of the church in our hearts today. And at the same time, I also want to call us to reorient ourselves as needed. 
because I do believe that each and every one of us, myself included, have not yet received the fullness of the revelation of the church as God has intended her. And yet we stand today, even in spite of that, we are gathered here today as his people to receive from him, to give to him, and to be the church, even though we don't see her fullness as of yet in terms of her expression on this earth. So I really just, I want to stir our hearts in faith this morning. I love to teach the word. Um, I'm still a growing teacher. I might not be as eloquent as Nick is, but I definitely feel like the Lord has given me something for you this morning. So I want to begin by saying something that has been stirring in me is just a, a clarity over these last number of years of realizing that I believe that the church has too low of a view of herself. Just think about that for a moment. I believe that the church has too low a view of herself. And the, the danger of that is that when the church doesn't hold a high enough view, with it, with it comes too low a view of her purpose and importance on the earth. And what follows that is also then the result is a diminished potency of the church on the earth. Can you follow my logic? And then when it comes to those of us who make up the body itself, if this low view is present, what we value, what we expect, what we pursue when we come together is dramatically altered and reduced as well. So when we think less of something, then we expect less of that thing. And I'm not saying that we have intentionally suppressed the value of the church, because I think each one of us here obviously we're present, we value the gathering of God's people. I'm just saying there's more, brothers and sisters. There is more that God wants us to take a hold of this morning. So I'm asking the Lord for us this morning, a revelation of his church to his church. That's us today. And I want us to see that this right here, the gathering of God's people, is so much more than what we so often see taught and embodied within the Western church which it oftentimes is, at its very best, an individual expression of faith. But if we stop there, if we stop with the church just simply being for us and about us, then we've missed God's purpose for his church altogether. And so this is, in essence, what Ephesians is talking about. And obviously, I'm not even going to try to recap, because what I'm going to do is I'm going to take the center cut of Ephesians this morning. You know, sometimes the center cut, it's the juiciest, it's, it's the best, right? It's the prime cut of meat. So I want to take Paul in a significant moment in his letter where he's been writing to the church about the significance of the glory of God revealed in the gathered people. And I want to together pursue in faith something of God in that way. And look at Paul's words in this pivotal moment of his letter where he's actually having spoken about a really significant uh, uh, aspect of the calling is what he's going to use in chapters one through three and four he's going to pivot now he's going to begin to talk about the ethics of walking that calling out so let's look at this together if you have your bibles which i hope you do if not you can follow on the monitors ephesians chapter four i'm going to read from the esv and i'm going to begin in verse one and read through 16 can we just now posture our hearts with readiness to receive the word of the Lord. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What a beautiful portion of Paul's letter. So I've chosen this portion of Paul's letter because he's going to show us that contrary to what we might think, the power of transformation is not found in the assertion of the church's dominance. But rather the power of transformation is found in how well the church reflects Jesus upon and to culture. It's not how well we assert what we think is our authority as given by God upon culture. It's how well we actually reflect Jesus to culture that affects change within this world today. So that means that the gospel is preached right here first to us and to each other. Our togetherness must first be in order for our mission to be effective. This has to be in place before us going out can be as effective as we want it to be and as God wants us to be. And so we, as we pursue unity and peace together, the church fulfills its calling by going toe-to-toe with culture today. By modeling humility, by modeling gentleness, patience, and lovingly bearing up with one another, we proclaim that only the gospel of Jesus Christ brings true unity among diversity in love amidst our differences. You hear what I'm saying this morning? This is what it means to reflect the gospel of Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about in the crux of his letter when speaking to the church. And he begins to talk about now how to walk this calling out. And he begins really actually quite powerfully. And what I want to do this morning is I just want to take these 16 verses and I want to break them into four kind of bite-sized chunks. In verses one through three, 
we're going to see how we are to walk in a manner that is worthy together. In verses 4 through 6, then what Paul does is he shifts and he, he gives us kind of the why as to which we are called to walk like this. And then thirdly, in verses 7 through 12, he speaks about the grace that God provides to his church in this walk. And then finally, in verses 13 through 16, he gives us this ultimate aim, what it is that we are to pursue together as we walk this all out. And so as I said, chapter 4 marks a really significant transition. And so I just want to take us through each one of these this morning Again, just keeping in mind that I'm wanting to raise our expectation and our affection and what it is that we pursue when we come together so that together, Mercy Commons Church would reflect the glory of Jesus upon culture. So he begins with speaking about how do we walk in a manner that is worthy. In verse 3, Paul is describing not so much the characteristics of our walk when he talks about walking with gentleness and humility, and patience, and bearing up with one another. It isn't so much the characteristics of our walk as it is Paul's talking about the attitude or the posture that is required from us as we walk this out together. Do you hear the difference? It isn't so much what we are to embody as it is the, the attitude that we are to take up and assume for ourselves. It's as though Paul is saying this, if you're going to be the church that reflects the glory of God as he has designed, this is what you must pursue together. So he begins first, and he says this in verse 2, we have to be a people who have an attitude of humility and gentleness, but it's towards one another. Humility and gentleness towards one another. We know humility, right? But let me just remind us again. What is humility? It means that we lack a sense of self-importance. This is the attitude that we are to take up with one another within the body of Christ. That we lack an attitude of self-importance. Or to have a lowliness of mind when it comes to oneself is another way of saying that. Does that conjure any scripture for you? Other places where Paul talks about this lowliness of mind. It's in Philippians chapter 2, a portion of text that we know so well. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, count others more significant than yourselves. There's also this sense that, that in this lowliness of mind or, or not thinking too highly of oneself, there's a recognition that we too are sinners saved by grace and loved by God. This is the posture that we are to take as believers within his church. Each and every one of us, we are the same. Sinners saved by grace and sons and daughters that are loved by the Father. And then Paul adds to this humility, gentleness. He says humility and gentleness coupled together, which gentleness is best understood in this context as a willingness to be gracious in circumstances that might cause us to be otherwise. A willingness to be gracious in circumstances that might cause us to be otherwise. In other words, it's meekness is what he's talking about in this way. That we're to have an attitude and a posture of meekness with each other. This is the foundation, church. 
This is the foundation of how we are to express our togetherness. I want to share with you just a biblical source, and I told Grace, I'm sorry, I don't remember what the source was. Sometimes I do that. I just see something. You found it? Put it in the app, Grace. You should do that, a concordance in your app. And then Grace is going to tell us who is going to share this quote that I'm about to read. Listen to this. They're, they're speaking about meekness, and I want you to hear this. They're not talking so much about meekness expressed within the church. Again, meekness being humility that Paul is talking about, or the gentleness that Paul is talking about. But I want you to listen and be able to apply this definition to the expression of the church itself. Meekness towards God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. Think about this in context of the church, please. As we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. In the Old Testament, the meek are those wholly relying on God rather than their own strength to defend against injustice. Thus meekness toward evil must, excuse me, towards evil people means knowing God is permitting the injuries they inflict that he's using them to purify his elect and that he will deliver his elect in his time. Gentleness or meekness is the opposite to self-assertiveness and self-interest. It stems from trust in God's goodness and control over the situation. The gentle person is not occupied with self at all. This is a work of the Holy Spirit, not of the human will. Who was that from? Oh, for Blue Letter Bible. That makes sense. So within the church then, within the church, what Paul is saying is that gentleness towards one another is to trust in God in the difficult circumstances that transpire between us, knowing that they're not only to work to purify us individually, but they aid in building us up together in maturity. Are you guys following me? Am I going... Too far, too fast. I don't get a lot of time, so it's like, (laughs) I'm just jumping right in because I have much more I want to say. But again, I just want you to hear, these are attitudes of the heart. These are postures that we're to take up as those who have been placed within the body of Christ with each other, with each other, because our mission relies upon the integrity and the strength of this here. So what Paul is actually saying is that within conflict within the church, within difficulties of circumstances, or the rub that comes together within family, we are to understand and to relate to that difficulty as being God's sovereign hand working in us and on us. Doesn't that change the way we understand conflict? Doesn't that change the way we understand relationship with each other? And now Paul's actually going to continue on. Again, this is all just beginning within the first three verses. Because secondly, he says in verse 2 that our walking is to be done with patience. So he says humility, gentleness, and patience. And in this, he's meaning that we are to support one another under provocation without retaliation. Think about it for a moment. Listen. This is a word for each and every one of us. Man, woman, teen, child. 
because it informs how we do this together. Our walking is to be done in patience. Regardless of the level of someone's annoyance, we are to bear up with one another. I was telling my church when I taught this text that to follow me is definitely to have to learn how to bear up. But we've all experienced it to some degree or another, haven't we? We have to learn how to bear up with one another. And then all of which he kind of encompasses under this beautiful umbrella, he says it's to be done in love. Not simply tolerating each other, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's not just saying, I've just got to put up with you. But the implication is that when, when needed, we are actually putting up with each other in love. And the engagements of these attitudes towards each other, he says, leads ultimately to an ability to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is what is necessary to maintain unity within the church. Humility, gentleness, patience in love. And in this statement of the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, Paul's speaking, it's like a ligament that fastens bone to muscle. So too does peace pursued fasten us to one another. I was thinking, you know, we tend to read Acts chapter 2, verse 42. You know that portion of Acts, right, where, it's, where Luke has recorded that all who believed were together and held all things in common. We read that text sometimes as this, like, this idyllic, unattainable New Testament utopia. How in the world could we possibly have all things in common? But the reality is, you guys, is that the New Testament church, just post-Pentecost, was walking out the difficulties and the rhythms of life with the same pursuits and characteristics that I'm speaking of today. So can we read Acts 2.42 and actually believe it's attainable? Do this. Yes, we can. We can hold all things in common, despite being as different, with varied backgrounds and cultures and preferences, and every other type of natural division or difference that could actually be present. We can have these things together, and we must hold these things together. And so then he moves on. So this was the first. He's speaking about the attitude or the posture that is necessary for us to take up. And then he moves on and he says, why is it that we're actually called to walk this way? It's almost like he tells us what we ought to do and then gives us the reason for why we ought to do it. Because then what he does is he lays out this beautiful theology for unity amongst diversity by pointing us to what? The archetype, the Godhead. In verses four through six, Paul tells us why it is that we must have this attitude among ourselves by picking up on this oneness that's implied within the word unity. Paul says that we're to think this way, just as there is one body. Listen to his language again. Listen, one body, one spirit, one God and Father, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Each of these things, what is Paul trying to show to us? One faith and yet different ordinances. One God, yet different persons within the Trinity. A gentleman this morning just prayed about the revelation of the Trinity in worship this morning. 
One God, yet three distinct, different persons. Are they all the same? No, they're not. Do they all accomplish the same task? No, they don't. But yet, they all work together towards the same purpose. Do you hear me this morning? I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're encouraged. In this statement here, in this portion of chapter 4, Paul's actually reminding us of something that we have not read here together this morning, but he's pointing us back to chapter 2, to what he said when Christ died in order to create one body out of a diversity of groups, reconciling all of them to himself through his one body, he says in verse 16 of chapter 2. Jesus killed the hostility is the language that he used. He killed the hostility. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility, Paul says. He tore down the division that existed and he created one new man from the many. Do we look at the church that way? When you, when you guys spend your five minutes greeting each other on a Sunday morning, do you, ref, do you relate to each other through your differences or do you see each other through the unification that God has brought you into as one body? That it's God's purpose that you are one of accord. See, if we can readily confess each one of those statements of the one body, the one Lord, the one spirit, the one faith, if we readily confess those things to be true, which we do all the time, right? In our songs, in our prayers, in the preaching of the word, in our own meditation, those are the truths that we hold fast to. If we can readily confess those as true, then we ought to be able to emulate this together yet different expression in our life as the church as well. If we say they're true, then we ought to be able to embody them as being true as well. So please hear me when I say this. The statement that the church is best when it reflects me is absolutely false. But yet we think that way at times, don't we? I mean, it's in our natural humanity to be drawn to people that are like us. But yet that's not God's design. The church is best and most glorious when it reflects the diversity of God as well as the unification and the reconciliation that Jesus and his cross has brought to the church. That's when the church is most glorious. When we are held together by the bonds of peace and unity and love with humility and gentleness and patience bearing with one another. God is most glorified. Why? Because only the grace of God by his spirit could accomplish something so radical in his church. Isn't it true? So I tell my church all the time, I don't want a church that's homogenous. I don't want a church that from the outside looks like it's just me gathering people together that I like. I want a church that is multifaceted, multi-generational, multi-every other thing that's out there possible. <laughs> Maybe not every other thing, but you know what I mean, right? The Lord knows my heart. But I want a church that reflects the diversity of God and professes and proclaims the unity that the Spirit of God brings to his people. This is what I want. So in that statement that the church is best when it reflects me, 
if we can just be honest, I think that sometimes some of us place too much of an emphasis on desiring sameness when that's not what the word of God calls for. Oneness and sameness are not the same thing. God is most glorified when natural enemies is a, is a term that D.A. Carson has used. When natural enemies come together in the common bond and purpose of worship unto Jesus Christ. Let me share this quote with you. And you might have heard this before. I'm not sure if you have or not, but it's excellent. D.A. Carson, he, he said this excellent quote that the church is not composed of natural friends, but rather natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything of the sort. Christians come together not because they form a natural coalition, but because they have been saved by Jesus Christ and, listen, owe him a common allegiance. In light of this common allegiance, In light of the fact that they have all been loved by Jesus himself, they commit themselves to doing what he says, and he commands them to love one another. In this light, they are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Love that quote. If that does not sum up the beauty of the church and the difficulty of the church, but yet the grace of God in the church, I don't know what does. So Paul says, this is the attitude that you're to take up. This is why you're to take it up, because it's seen within God's design as first displayed in himself. And then he moves on and he says, but listen, God has given to you. He's given to you gifts of grace in order that while you're walking this out, you're going to accomplish my ultimate purpose. And so to further prove that that this is God's design of, of unity immense diversity, Paul continues on by fleshing it out even further and identifying the gift of diversity that God displays within the church by calling each one of us to function differently, but what? Yet with the same purpose. Each one of us, listen to me please, each one of us is called to function in his body. Not the same, but with the same purpose. And he says in verse seven that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is familiar language as well because Paul has used similar language elsewhere. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in verse four through seven, he says that there's a variety of gifts but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service but the same Lord. In other words, different but together. And there are varieties of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And then he says, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, what Paul's talking about here is the variety of expressions of grace that God endows on men and women within the church, each and every one of us. Do you believe that here this morning? That if you're sitting here this morning, you have been given a measure of grace for the body that is mercy commons. And it is up to you before the Lord in obedience to him to walk out and to steward well that measure of grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul's talking about what we traditionally call the gifts of the spirit. And it's the same point here in Ephesians chapter four. 
It's just different functions of grace. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, he says in 7. And then he goes on and a few verses later. He says he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We sometimes hyper-focus on the gift, but we're missing the actual purpose is that God gives gifts to his church to build up the saints for ministry. For the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. And we don't have time this morning to examine each one, but listen, the implication is really clear. Firstly, and very plainly, we can see that there are different roles and yet different functions within the church. There's different roles and different functions in the church. That's obvious. But then secondly, what's important, please listen to me, it's not the person, it's the purpose. It's not about the individual. The church has made this about something it isn't. We've made the church like a a hierarchy of business, as though the, the, the individuals who are seemingly at the top are the most important. I tell my church all the time, it's this, brothers and sisters, it's the tip of a spear Some of us are called to be out in front. Some of us are called to come behind and to gather those. We all have different functions in the body of Christ. What is your fit and what is your function? And then in case we're to question the source of the gift, or in case we, we want to question the right that God has to give it in the measure that he desires, Paul reminds us that it's Christ who both descended and ascended. In other words, he now sits high above the heavenly places, as Paul's going to say all the way back in chapter 1. Above all rulers and powers and authority, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of God. But not only has he ascended to the highest heights, but he descended to the lowest as well. So that all things, Christ may be preeminent. And therefore, it is his right to give according to the measure that he so chooses. Can we accept that? And so the great news for us is that in a body that believes in call over competence, which I'm going to assume you do, as we do as well, the most important is whether an individual has been called and to the extent of which they're called, We haven't to fear or question those whom God empowers. Instead, we joyfully trust God to sovereignly administrate his church. We sang it this morning. What did we profess over and over again? He works in all things. Or I don't remember how the words go. All things together for my good. I have to actually sing it. All you make, all things work together for my good. Right? We sang it over and over again, but sometimes it's just this. We just do this. Oh, this trial that I'm in front of. Oh, this difficulty in my life. Yes, we need the gospel for our lives, but you guys, it doesn't stop here. It begins here, and it flows this way. So when we sing the words, you make all things work together for my good, I'm thinking about Nick, who said something that really cut across the grain for me yesterday. And I'm going, no, you know what? Actually, I understand that God is using that working together for my good that he's using it to build me up into the body, us together into the body of Christ. (laughs) 
And so through all of this, we can see that the church is healthiest when it functions in the varieties of gifting that God uniquely empowers each one of us to walk in. The church is healthiest when each one of us walk in the measure of grace that he has given to us. I'm trying to make eye contact with each and every one of us there this morning. Because sometimes we just think it's about the musicians who do this so well, or the individual who stands here and teaches, or Grace who speaks so eloquently of, you know, about this and that, and we go like, yeah, listen, church is great. It's all taken care of. The teachers are doing this, and I got the coffee being served, and I don't have to do anything. I can just show up and receive what I need. You're wrong. You have something to give. It is a measure of grace. And you have to suss out that measure before the Lord. And then he lands with this, and I'm going to land here quickly. I know we're up against it. Paul says all of this. What is our ultimate aim? So in each one of these things, the foundation being our attitude, the grace that has been given, why are these things true? What is the ultimate aim that we pursue together? What is this what of all of it? Beginning uh, here, Paul, Paul describes the final goal of this divine feat of engineering as union with Christ in all of his fullness, which we probably don't even really fully comprehend the extent of that statement. But this is the ultimate aim. As we endeavor to live in and out these previous truths, we do so with the aim and the hope of growing into the stature of Christ himself. This is actually what he speaks of when he says in verse 13 that until we attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, the word there for mature manhood actually means into a full-grown man. It's like, a, like an adolescent whose body has not yet attained its ultimate goal, bringing health, strength, and ability, so too do we continually and faithfully walk out this way as a means of reaching our body's ultimate maturity. Where the fullness of Christ is on display. And we keep on doing these things because what Paul doesn't say to us here in these verses is that some point here it's actually going to end and we will have attained the maturity of the fullness of the stature of Christ. Actually, what Paul is saying is that there's this sense where it just perpetually continues on, that this is the call of a church together to pursue these things and to mature. Do we have hope of maturation? Absolutely, we do. This isn't just an effort of futility, but there also is this sense in Paul's mind that just says, this is an ongoing and continual work of faithfulness. And the result of all of this, he says in verse 14, is that we would no longer be weak in body like a child, he says. He uses this body analogy all through here. Like a child that's unable to keep themselves above the waves. You guys live closer to the ocean than I do. That analogy is probably very clear. Watch your kid go out into the ocean. You, you send yourself out in the ocean sometimes. And you're doing this, trying to keep your head above the water. Not that we would be simply like a child trying to keep their head above the waves or those that are so weak they're not able to actually keep themselves from being blown to and fro. 
but that the church would grow to this measure of stature where you are planted so firmly in the truthfulness of Christ Jesus that you are steady eddy, that you are resilient and resistant, that you are strong and capable, that you are mature and transformed in your thinking. This is what Paul has in mind, and this is our goal together as we grow to this measure. So brothers and sisters, just to say, the more mature that the church becomes, the more effective it will be in its mission. But listen, for this to happen, each ligament, each bone, each organ, whatever you are in the body of Christ, must find its fit and function, must know its place, and must pursue this together by the grace of God. Let me pray, may I? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. And Lord, this morning, we just wanna pause and ask now by your spirit that you would help us each to apply these truths. Lord, we we just open our hands right now as just an act of obedience to say, Lord, what I hold is yours. Those things that we cling to, Lord, so deeply and intently, I ask, Lord, that you would help for us to be good stewards, that you help for us, Lord, to to not hold and cling too tightly. Lord Jesus, build this church, I pray. Strengthen this church as each man, woman, young man, young woman, teen, finds their place in this body and pursue these things together. I pray that you would strengthen this church, Lord, by your spirit. And that peace and humility, that gentleness, that patience, that love would be, um, would be pillars and, and, and traits of this body of Christ, Lord. And I ask, Lord, that as they pursue these things together, that you would glorify yourself in such a great degree through them. That you would make yourself known through Mercy Commons Church to Fullerton for its joy, for your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray these things. We thank you, Lord, in your name. Amen. The thing that has unified us as a people is the broken body and spilled blood of Jesus Christ. It's funny that when Paul talks to another church, he says, remember the body. He isn't necessarily talking about the body of Jesus, though he is. He's saying, remember the body as we go to the table. And so while the band continues, I want to invite those of you that are followers of Jesus to the table. There's uh, one at the back and the side. The front table has wine. And to gather the elements those powerful, tangible elements that have produced this unity and diversity that we celebrate and bring it back to your seat so that we can take it in unison. Jesus, we hold in our hands a tangible reminder of your broken body and your spilled blood. That on the night that you were betrayed, looking around this odd ball collection of people, united in diversity 
I pray that as we take this meal, you would remind us of two things. One, most importantly, the fact that we belong to you. That as we take this meal, we are reminded that your broken body and your shed blood means that we are yours. Sons and daughters of the living God. And that secondly, you would remind us that we belong to each other. That this is a family meal. We take it together because it represents our oneness and our unity that you purchased for us on the cross. This is the broken body of your Savior Jesus. Take and eat. blood that represents a new covenant, blood that cleansed you of the penalty of your sin and gives you power over sin. As the band continues to play, I know we've gone on a little, but there's opportunity to receive prayer and to receive prayer from other members of the body that are wanting to walk with you. Feeling specifically in the area of belonging, belonging to this body, Mercy Commons as a local church, but also in a sense of belonging that belonging to Jesus. He is the reason that we can have a sense of belonging as a community. And then Sean also had another group of people that he wanted to highlight to receive prayer. Yeah, as Matt was uh, sharing about just kind of wading out into the, the water and kind of getting shuffled around, I just um, just reminded through through worship this morning, I was feeling the, the the drum hit the floor, and I felt it through my feet, and I just was like reminded that we've been set on a foundation which is Christ, and and uh, maybe you're someone here that just needs a fresh reminder of who you are in Christ, that. That is where we're grounded. That is where we get to learn how to move with the waves that come at us in life. And if you're, uh, if you're that person, you just need a fresh reminder of who you are in Christ, we would love to pray with you. So we love you guys. We love you guys. Uh, we're going to go ahead and kind of wrap things up. Um, we're going to gather in the back. If you've got kiddos, please go ahead and grab, grab them. If, you, uh, if you're, God's not done doing business with you, uh, get, get prayer before, before you leave today. But we love you. Go be the church. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.